almost got too excited there. I about jumped up on the drums. But uh, I don't think Clay or the praise band or any of you would have appreciated that. So uh, praise the Lord. What a wonderful time of worship. We're going to continue in worship this morning as we open God's word. In my few short years here in Texas, uh, I've encountered a lot of diehard football fans. And in Texas, it's a little different than in my home state because in Arkansas, you got the hogs and uh, that's pretty much it. But I have met a lot of diehard Longhorn fans, Aggie fans, Frog fans, Baylor Bear fans, Texas Tech Red Raider fans, and in pro sports, you got Cowboys fans and, and Texan fans. Yeah, I got it. All right. Some Cowboys fans for, for at least the season hadn't started yet, so... They got the same record as everybody else, right? Yeah. And I've met many who can, many people who can name many of the starters from these current teams, and some of them even know the hometown they grew up in and their their high school stats. I've met people who have season tickets to their team's home games, and even if their team is struggling, they're, they're at most of those games, and they follow every starter. Those, those are the true fans, am I right? And for those of you all who know fans like that, you would never even consider questioning their loyalty to the team, am I right? Yeah, me neither. I mean, it's, it's, it's proven, right, just in, in, not just in how they talk about the team, but in what they know about the team and in their actions. It's proven that they are true fans by their devotion to their team. But do you know who else I've, I've encountered here and elsewhere? I've encountered those who, though they wear the t-shirts at times and claim to be a fan of this team or that team, they couldn't even tell you who the starting quarterback is and how many games that team has won or lost. There were some I went to school with who, though they went to the University of Arkansas and wore the t-shirt and claimed to be an Arkansas Razorback fan, they never even stepped foot into the stadium and never watched a game on TV. Now... I'll tell you, unlike the the first group, it's very easy for me to question their loyalty. The second group of people's loyalty, because though they may wear the shirt and go to the school and say they cheer for this team or for that team, their actions say something completely different. Their actions tell me that they could really care less. And folks... We not only see this in sports, but we also see this in the church, do we not? There are many in our churches today who, though they come to church week in and week out and dress the part and say the right things and associate with the right people and and claim to be true followers of Christ, when you look at their life, there is no evidence whatsoever that they are, in fact, a Christ follower. And this is so common in our churches today that they have a name for these types of people. They call them nominal Christians. A nominal Christian is a Christian in name only. Though they identify as Christians and with Christians, the only thing Christian about them is that they claim to be one. When you look at their lives, 
there is no evidence whatsoever that they do in fact follow Christ. Well, Paul is going to address this issue this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 32. We're continuing our sermon series through Ephesians entitled Walking Worthy. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this wonderful book. We're in Ephesians 4. And as I've said throughout this study, this book is probably one of the easiest books to outline in the entire Bible. It divides nicely into two sections. There are six chapters in the book of Ephesians, and it divides up three and three. In the first three chapters, Paul's focus is upon doctrine. What we as believers know, he spends the first three chapters informing his Christian audience about what God has done for them in salvation and who they are in Christ. And he then records a prayer that he prays for them that they would know these things. And we've said in here already, the reason why Paul begins in this way with doctrine, with knowing before doing, is because Paul knows before one can be faithful in practice, they must first be sound in doctrine. Knowing precedes doing. Right thinking leads to right living. So Paul starts with knowing. And then in chapter 4, Paul transitions from focusing on what we as believers know to focusing upon what we as believers do. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, in light of all of these things that God has done for you, in light of who you are in Christ, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he goes on to spend the latter half of this book, chapters 4 through 6, focusing upon the practical, on how we as Christians are to live our lives. Well, we're in the second section of the book, and last week we looked at verses 17 through 24, and in that passage, Paul gave us a, a general statement on walking worthy. He basically says, Christians are to be different. They're not to walk like they once walked. They're to be putting off the old man and they're to be putting on the new. They're not to walk like the godless, like those who are hard-hearted and blatantly sinful. But they're to live like Christ and they're to walk as he walked. Paul basically says in the passage we looked at last week, he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new you with a new nature and you are to walk differently. Now, now, folks, let's be honest for just a minute. This is not the way we normally talk in our churches today, especially in the South, do we? Rarely do you have this teaching that says, if you're a true follower of Christ, life should look like this. And if it doesn't, then chances are good you may not be a true follower of Christ. We don't often talk like this, do we? We don't. When someone is questioning their salvation, we often go back to the moment in the past when they shed a tear or when they walked an aisle or when they prayed a prayer. We very seldom look to the present 
when it comes to salvation. But do you know who does? Paul does. John does. James does. Peter does. Jesus does. But we don't. It's rare you will have someone address someone else's present condition when they're in doubt spiritually. When someone is questioning their salvation, more often than not, you'll have someone say, you know, did you pray this prayer? Did you mean it? Do you think you meant it back when you were seven or eight? Did you mark this date down in your Bible? But how often do we say, are you living for Christ today? Are you trusting in Him for your salvation right now? Listen, folks, though good works do not save us, do not hear me say that, Good works do not save us. But you know what Scripture teaches? Scripture clearly teaches over and over and over again that good works do reveal that God has begun and is doing a good work within us. Though they don't save us, they do reveal that we are in fact saved. Nathaniel read a great passage for us. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, listen to this. He says, be even more diligent. Make every effort, he says, to make your calling and your election sure. How do we do this? How do we make our calling sure? How do we know if we belong to God, if we've truly been saved? Well, according to Peter here, in this passage, in Paul and John and James and Jesus elsewhere we know that we're in christ one way we know we're in christ is by way of get this virtue virtue they tell us that we will have the knowledge and the assurance of our salvation get this not just by remembering a past event but by seeing a present virtue clearly taught scripture listen folks If you are not living a different life, if you never have, chances are that you may not be a different you, like we talked about last week. New creations act like new creations. Or we said it this way last week. Followers of Christ, by definition, do what? Follow Christ. Follow Christ. Now again, do we mess up at times? Of course we do. But scripture teaches that we're often messed up about messing up and we're grieved by it and we are repentant. Scripture is clear. God's people are those types of people who are sensitive to sin and who have the ability to resist sin and trust in Christ and follow him and walk in newness of life with him. That's Paul's whole point in this passage here that we looked at last week and the passage for this week. And that's really his point throughout the entire rest of the book of Ephesians. In the first half of the book, he shares with his Christian audience that because they're in Christ, they are new creations. And then, in chapters 4 through 6, he basically says, therefore, because you're a new creation, here is how you are to live as a result. He says, you're a new creation, and because you're a new creation, you're to live differently, because new creations live differently. And in chapters 4 through 6, he explains how we're to be different and how we're to live differently. And again, last week we talked about what it looks like 
in general terms. And in the passage we're going to look at today and throughout the rest of the book, Paul gives us more specific examples of what this new life in Christ is meant to look like. Notice verses 25 through 32. Paul gives us five examples of what it looks like for believers to walk in newness of life. First, he says, instead of lying, believers are to speak the truth. Look at verse 25. Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. One common characteristic of a true follower of Christ is that he or she is about what is right and true. Paul is very clear on this here, and God is clear on this here and elsewhere in his word. Now again, do believers at times mess up when it comes to the truth? Sure we do. But I'll also say this, hear me very closely. If by looking at your life, all you see is a consistent flow of lies and deceit, if you are a liar by character, you need to take a long, hard look at your life because last I checked, that wasn't the fruit of the Spirit, all right? In fact, who in Scripture is referred to as the father of lies? Who? Satan, exactly right. Jesus said this of him in John chapter 8, verse 44. And believers, if this is true of him, this should not then be characteristic of us. If we are new creatures in Christ, then we should not be liars by character. That's what Satan is, according to John 8. And this is also a chief characteristic of the world in which we live, is it not? Which should not surprise us, seeing how Satan is, in fact, the prince of this world. And we see this all the time, right? We, we witness lies in the business world, in parts of the religious world, in the political world, at times in the educational world. Lies, lies, lies. Business associates lie to one another. Students lie to their teachers. At times, teachers lie to their students. Friends lie to one another. Children lie to their parents. Parents, at times, lie to their children. Husbands and wives lie to each other. Congregants lie to their pastors. Some pastors lie to their congregants. Notice I said some, okay? Believers, this is not to be characteristic of us. When you come to know Christ, who is the truth, John 14, and study God's word, that is truth, John 17, and are guided by the one true God, John 17, and indwell with the very spirit of truth, John 16, what should result from that is that we should, in fact, walk in truth. That should be characteristic of us. Scripture is clear that God is very concerned with what is right and true. In the beginning, he punished man for not believing the truth. And later on in the story, he sent his only son down to come down to earth to take on flesh to convince us of the truth. Jesus said of himself, John 14, 6, I am the truth. And he gave his life for us so that we could come to know the truth. And he gave us his Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth. Therefore, we need to put off the old man by putting away falsehood. And instead, we need to be all about what is right and true. Paul says, put off lying and be all about the truth. 
There's a second example Paul gives here of what it looks like for a believer to walk in newness of life. He says, instead of unrighteous anger, believers are to be angry and sin not. Look at verse 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, there are several words for anger used in the Greek New Testament. There's a word used that has to do with uncontrollable anger that leads to violence. There's another word that has to do with inward resentment one feels toward another. One has to do with a prideful feeling that leads to anger. So a lot of usages of the word, but Paul doesn't use any of those words here. In this passage, he uses a different word altogether. It's the Greek word orge, and it has to do with anger that comes from a settled conviction. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. Let's say you have a child that you are committed to love and care for, and someone comes along and hurts that child. That anger that you feel is the kind of anger Paul's talking about here. And this word can be either good or bad depending upon what it is you're committed to that angers you when violated. It's a matter of motive. Let's say I'm committed to completing a 5,000-piece puzzle, and I have five pieces left, and joy comes toddling in and just demolishes it. Is it right for me to be angry at her? No. One, it's a stupid puzzle. And two, she's a baby. But let's say, because I'm a follower of Christ who is committed to the truth of God's word, I witness a pastor questioning the truthfulness of the Bible and using his platform to explain it away. Can and should I get angry at that? You bet. Scripture is clear that we can and should get angry over the things that grieve God. Like we sing on occasion in here, we need God, folks, to break our hearts for what breaks His. We need to be grieved by what God is grieved by. We need to hate what He hates, which is the sin in our lives and the sin in our world. And we need to be opposed to any and everything that hurts His gospel and attempts to stand in the way of his kingdom advancing unfortunately believers more often than not that's not what upsets us is it we get angry when people drag our names through the mud and attack our character and thwart our purposes but not so much when it comes to god and i'm not saying you shouldn't get upset when people talk negatively about you or someone you love but i am saying you need to make sure that your zeal for god and your desires to make his name great and your passion to advance his kingdom is priority number one in your life Paul says, be angry about the right things. And when you do get angry about the wrong things for the wrong reasons, be quick to deal with it. If you have an issue with a brother or sister in Christ or a spouse or another family member, be quick to deal with it. Paul says in verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Verse 27, right after it. So that you give no opportunity to the devil unrighteous, 
ungodly anger, anger that is directed toward the wrong people for the wrong reasons that is not properly dealt with can give the devil a foothold in your life. It gives him great opportunity to to rip good, godly relationships apart. And that's what Satan delights in doing. Do you know that? Folks, Satan is an enemy to Christian unity and love and oneness. When you allow conflict to go unresolved in your life, he jumps all over that. He jumps at those opportunities to destroy good godly relationships. Listen how Warren Wiersbe said it. I love this. He says, Satan hates God and his people. And when he finds a believer with the sparks of anger in his heart, he fans those sparks, adds fuel to the fire, and does a great deal of damage to God's people and his church. Mark that down. Store it away. Keep it. Let it remind you of the dangers of the wrong kind of anger, misdirected anger, and the dangers of disunity. For that reason, Paul says, we got to be on guard, folks. we got to put that away. we got to put away unrighteous anger. we got to deal with it quickly and be angry about the right things for the right reasons and sin not. There's a third example Paul gives here of what it looks like for believers to walk in newness of life. He says, instead of stealing to get, believers are to work to give. How about that? Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Theft is a bad problem in our world today, isn't it? But not just in today's world. It's always been a problem, hasn't it? And it's a problem everywhere. Like lying, stealing is another common characteristic in this fallen and sin-stained world in which we live. It's something that's a part of our sinful nature. The old man steals. When we want something that's not ours, we often do all that we can by any means necessary to get it. Now, some of you hear this and you get offended by that. You think, well, that wasn't true of me before salvation. I've never been a thief. I've never spent my weekends before being saved, breaking into homes and stealing jewelry and big screen TVs. Maybe not. But there are some more subtle ways that we violate this commandment, don't we? For example, we do it by manipulating people to give us things they don't want to give us. We do it by stealing time at work, doing things on the job that aren't related to the job. We do it by being dishonest on our, on our taxes, claiming something that we shouldn't or leaving something off that we should include. Paul says here in Ephesians 4, this is not to be characteristic of a child of God. God's people are not to be known as thieves. Look at what he says again, first part of verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Pretty clear what he's saying there, right? But notice what he says next. He says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says here, instead of stealing something to get something you didn't earn, God's people are to work to give what they did earn. Wow, what what a contrast, right? What a contrast here. Instead of stealing to get, God's people are to work to give. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about work, doesn't it? 
Work can be an honorable thing. And that's what Paul is, is talking about here. The Greek word he uses here, it, it, it refers to tough manual labor. Tough manual labor is good. It is. Work was around before the fall. Did you know that? It's just a lot easier to work in a land that's not fallen, right? But it is. It's from God. Paul's talking about hard work here. He says it's good to work hard. And he also says it's good that that hard work, it's good when hard work is honest work as well. Paul says the hard work you should be doing should be honest and ethical. You should not have to compromise yourself morally in your job. And he also says that we as believers, we're to be doing honest, hard work so that we have more to give. Notice he doesn't say work to have, though there's nothing wrong with having things. Nothing wrong with that at all. We're just to be, not to be working to hoard our wealth away. Folks, hoarding is horrible. Though having is not bad, hoarding is horrible. Listen to what Solomon said about it in Ecclesiastes 5.13. He says, There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept back by their owner to his hurt. Notice here, Solomon refers to the hoarding of wealth as a grievous evil. And there are several reasons for this. One, because the one hoarding is miserable. If you're constantly concerned about losing what you have, that's a miserable existence, isn't it? Have you ever known of a happy hoarder or a joyful miser? I think of Scrooge, right? Nothing happy about that guy, right? No. So there's nothing, there, there's nothing desirable about it. It's, it's very burdensome. And you know what? When money becomes our master, it displeases God because he is the one who wants to rule in our life. And for those reasons and more, we've said many times in here, money, though it makes a good servant, it makes a bad master. It does. Money is not meant to rule us, but it's meant to be used by us for God and for his glory. Paul says God's people are to be the very ones who understand this. There's another example that Paul gives here of what it looks like for God's people to walk in newness of life. He says, instead of corrupt communication, listen to this, believers are to speak wholesome words. Look at verse 29 and 30 here. It's very practical. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let's first focus on the first part of verse 29. Paul says here, no corrupt talk. The word corrupt means rotten. It has to do with something that's worthless and useless and vile and diseased. Something that's not good for anybody. You ever been around someone who speaks in this way? I mean, every other word is just profane and crude and perverse. You look at them like, why are you telling me this? Why are you filling my head with this junk? Listen, folks, Paul is clear here. There is no place for that in the Christian life. Absolutely none. It's not to be characteristic of God's people. Paul is clear here. On this, let me give you a verse to remember. Psalm 141.3. Listen to what David prays here. 
Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Believers, you ought to pray this for yourself. Listen, if Christ is the doorkeeper of your lips, he'll be the one to determine what comes out. And let me say this as well. There is nothing that comes out of your mouth that was not in your heart to begin with. Did you know that? Have you ever heard someone say something and then they'll apologize and say, sorry, I didn't mean to say that? Well, scripturally, that's not true. What they should have said was, please excuse excuse me for saying exactly what I was thinking or feeling. Jesus says in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. According to Jesus, whatever comes out of your mouth was what was in your heart. Wow. So Paul tells us here, Believers are to be different. Instead of corrupting talk, the words that should come out of our mouths should be edifying. Believers, the words we speak, it should build others up. We should use our words to encourage and to strengthen one another. Paul also says that the words we speak should be necessary. I like the way the ESV translates it. It says our words should fit the occasion. You ever ask someone for advice and they begin telling you something completely unrelated to that? Or they make it all about themselves? We're guilty of doing this at times, aren't we? Listen, believers, when we speak words, they should fit the occasion. And they should be necessary and helpful and they should edify. They should also be gracious. Look at the end of verse 29. Paul says that it may give grace to those who hear. Folks, are you gracious with your words? Do your words bless those who hear it? Paul says, because we have a new heart and a new nature, from our new heart and our new nature should come new speech. In verse 30, look at what he says. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Did you know we can grieve God? God grieves. We're told he wept in Jeremiah told his heart was broken in the book of Hosea. We're told that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and at the grave of Lazarus. And we're told here that we can grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't put off the old and put on the new and when we're not all about what is true and when we get angry at the wrong things for the wrong reasons and allow Satan to get a foothold and when we steal to get instead of working to give and when we speak corrupt words instead of words that edify and are necessary and are gracious. Paul's saying here, don't do that. Don't grieve the one who sealed you for the future day of redemption. He says, the Spirit of God, folks, he's been so gracious to you. He has applied the finished work of Christ to your life. He has sealed you forever. So don't you, in turn, grieve him by walking as you once walked. One last point. Last example Paul gives here of what it looks like for God's people to walk in newness of life is this. He says, instead of hate, believers are to love unconditionally. Look at verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul's talking about how we 
relate to one another once again. And he says here, if we have bitterness and wrath and anger, and if we're constantly arguing and attacking those around us, we need to, we need to put that away. And we should have the ability to, to do that, believers, if we are true followers of Christ and be able to resist that. Instead, we need to be kind to one another, and we need to be tenderhearted, and we need to forgive. Now, I've heard some people try to justify their actions and say, well, you don't know this person. I yelled at them because, because they're, they're, they deserve it, you know? They deserve it. They deserve exactly what I'm giving them. Listen, Paul makes it very clear here. We should not justify our actions in this way. You know why? Because God didn't deal with us in that way, did he? Aren't you glad that he didn't? Though we deserve the full fury of his anger and wrath, God instead was kind and loving and gracious and forgiving to us even when we didn't deserve it. So Paul says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me close with this. Maybe you're here this morning. You can honestly say that this type of love and forgiveness is just completely foreign to you. And the reason why is because you have yet to experience the kindness and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God yourself this is you, I have, I have good news for you this morning. Scripture is clear. If you would come to the end of yourself, if you would turn from your life of sin, if you would turn away from going at life on your own, and if you would make Christ the Lord of your life, if you would repent of your sins, turn from your sins, trust in Christ alone for salvation, God tells us very clearly in his word that he will forgive us our sins, If we repent of our sins, he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, by turning from your sin and making Christ Lord, you can be forgiven and made right with God. If you've never made that decision, pray you would this morning. Let's pray.